Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Downing has served 22 years in jail for a crime he has always claimed he did not commit and from his cell at Dorchester Prison praised the investigative campaign launched by the Matlock Mercury and supported this week by both Central Television and the Daily Star. Stephen Downey was ordered to be detained at Her Majesty's pleasure to being convicted of the murder of Mrs Wendy Saul at Nottingham Crown Court on February the 15th, 1974. Home Office reports describe him as a model prisoner, always polite, well-mannered and cooperative, mature and well-balanced, no danger to the public. So this was in... 1995, January. Stephen's been monitored constantly during his 22 years in prison and has constantly maintained his innocence saying he admitted the offence originally to protect his sister. Last March, he was allowed a home visit to Bakewell to spend time with his parents and sister Christine under supervision and received a very warm welcome from friends, relatives and residents. The officer who travelled with him remarked on his unusual welcome in a home office report and stated, maybe there's something in the point he's trying to make about not being guilty. he told the Mercury, I always said the truth will come out one day, but can't really understand why it has taken 22 years for the police to look at some obvious clues to find the real murderer. If he is eventually released with a pardon, Danny will be the longest serving wrongly convicted prisoner in history and could eventually receive over £1 million in compensation. Stephen Downing grew up inside prison, or rather inside various prisons. His career as an inmate saw him housed in jails all around the UK and campaigners for his release fervently believed that Stephen, like Wendy, was an innocent victim of the crime. So it's now Wednesday. I'm back in Wales to talk to Don Hale again. Um, I'm just sitting on the beach before I go to his house. Um, it's a very lovely, kind of grey, still day. Um, just kind of get my thoughts in order, really. Um, so, Stephen has refused to uh, speak to us. He was quite rude to me on the phone, I think it's fair to say. Um, um, I think he's a bad experience with the journalists and was sort of lumping me in the same category as them as um, kind of blood-sucking leeches um, not quite direct quote but pretty much um, so um, yeah not totally pleasant but not you know understandable because you know the guy spent years in jail Okay, so let's talk about about Stephen. Mm. So, so since our last meeting, I had a quite a difficult conversation with with Stephen, and mm. he he said he doesn't want to be part of this. Uh, doesn't want to con- contribute to this. No, this, this series. I didn't think he would, to be honest. No, I think, I think what what people have to realise is that, you know, although he's what now sixty two, um, 
he's been through hell and back really over his time you know he was jailed when he was 17 convicted as a, as a murderer and spent best part of 28 years in prison and when he came out the world had moved on so quickly that he found it very difficult to cope with everything you know um you know we didn't have things like mobile phones mcdonald's a whole range of things that we take for granted now um and he, he did find it very very difficult to settle down and he got some sort of education within prison he, he, he knuckled down and took various exams and sort of qualified for a chef and different things so he'd made something as or the best of his life if you can in, in prison but he thought he would spend the rest of his life in prison as a lifer um According to the Home Office information, when I was dealing with it, he would have been 70 before he was released. So all this plays a massive part emotionally. I mean, I found it very difficult, obviously, in, in rethinking everything for, for this book and the podcast and everything else, um, to throw your mind back. I mean, I'm going back 25 years when I first started on this this case, and it's brought back a lot of emotions for me. I, I've When I first started on this, I found it very difficult to sleep because you're bringing back emotions that you've tried to put away, tried to forget the worst of it. It, it is worrying, and, and I think Stephen's gone through the same sort of thing. When, it's, when this has been put back to him, lots of things have flooded back into his mind and things he wanted to forget literally forever. <laughs> and his life has been absolutely trash because of this case. And so I can understand that he doesn't want to take part. I was going to talk to Stephen to get him to give a picture of himself in his own words, mm. but um, but in the absence of that, <laughs> I'm going to ask you about it. But also, you had an extensive correspondence with him and visiting him in prison yeah. and so on. So tell me about Stephen. Obviously, I first came across Stephen in, in, in 1994 when I started on the campaign. I went to the parents' house a couple of days after they first visited me at the Michael Mercury offices. The arrangement was Stephen would phone from prison at a, at a, within a period of an hour that I was there or so, and he did. And that was my first contact with him. A phone call from prison. Which from pr prison. Which prison was this? Um, uh, this was in Dorchester prison. You're only allowed a couple of minutes on these things. You've got a phone card or something, and this, everything's monitored. And it was a fairly brief conversation, but he was very pleased that I was taking an interest in the case. Sounded quite nervous, quite emotional in a sense with that. Did he sound like you expected him to sound? Um, Did he come across how you expected him? He sounded almost uh, a bit mousy, really, a bit sort of quiet and, and almost apologetic, you know, sorry to have put you to this trouble type thing. It was, he, he wasn't he, he wasn't a confident person at all. And um, he, he, he almost probably thinking, well, you're just another journalist, really, as as I think the parents probably thought initially. You're going to run a story or two and that will be it. You know, thanks, but no thanks. We're, we're just reviving the general pattern of, of what, what happened with the case. But that wasn't my intention, really, was to sort of say, well, uh, I mean, I was new. I was an outsider. You know, I'd come from sort of Manchester area. So this was new to me. I hadn't known anything about the case at all. And I think that was good because mm -hmm. I was starting from the lowest level and working my way up. That started uh, correspondence with him for uh, about eight years, you know. Dear Don, I was pleased to read of your progress you are making. I don't want to dash anyone's hope of success, but I can't help feeling that the whole thing will be a wet squib. With all this now coming on top of me, I can't help wondering if I will ever get out. I'm sorry for being so depressed. Best regards, Stephen Downing. So where did you go and visit him? And well, the first one I went to was at Dorchester. Horrendous journey for me from Derbyshire, travelling down there. It was in winter. I was I was used to the prison system, yes. if you like. I, I I knew what to expect in many ways. But um, I went in the. You, you go into the waiting room. You have to have your VO stamped. You then you, that's a visiting order. A visiting order, and your details are checked basically on that. They're verified that you are allowed to visit that person on that day, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I was kept waiting for ages and I was the only one that was detained. Everyone else w went in. And after a while, the lady was sort of cleaning up and said, look, love, you better go up to the gate and they've obviously forgotten about you. Well, it was obviously deliberate. They didn't want me going in. And they were telling me, oh, he's changed his mind. He doesn't want to see you. And I said, well, I've come all this way. Um, I'd like to have a face-to-face. -face. So if, it, if he tells me that face-to-face, -face, that's fine. But he's written to me and we've had correspondence and all the rest. And I knocked on the, the door and it was like you know, the old... Um, almost like Nottingham Castle type thing where you've got a small door within a massive door and this guy opens up the thing and he's spitting food at me as he's, well, what do you want? All oh, this sort of thing. And I'm so, gave him a name. 
I said, I've got visitors tonight. Oh, you're too late. You know, it's, it's already gone. He's trying to shut the door. And I'm saying, well, hang on a minute, hang on a minute. And so eventually I'm allowed into this old small courtyard and he's still eating his, his, his pie and his food and stuff like that, spitting all over, you know. And um, eventually, I, I, you know, I make a bit of a fuss and they call the supervisor and, and they say, okay, we're, we're allowed to, if you, as long as you agree to a strip search, you know. Well, I've never had a strip <laughs> search in my life, really, no need for it. But I had to agree to that before they would even consider uh, coming through. And so, I, you know, you strip down socks and shoes, strip down to your underpants, basically, you know. You check you check your clothes and make sure you're not carrying anything in, knives or blades or anything like that, you know. Um, anyways, I'm putting it back on, you know. I, I accidentally knocked off the, um, the warder's meat pie onto the floor and then deliberately stood on it, you know, so that, uh, oh, I'm sorry about that, mate, you know. <laughs> Um, just to sort of get my own back on him, really. And eventually, I'm allowed through gates after gates after gates. And I'm about half an hour behind everybody else because of all this hoo-ha, you know. And eventually, I get through to, to see Stephen, and he's, he's he's sort of, you know, comes through the gates there, uh, grinning at me, you know, almost delighted to have a visitor, you know, because <laughs> he didn't get many. <laughs> um, very, very rare, few and far between. Um, so, we, you know, we, we sort of shook hands and whatever, and we put a, a table they prepared a special table for us and you're surrounded by, I don't know, four warders or something like that. So they're listening to every word. Mm. You're not allowed to obviously touch him or hug him or anything like that, you know. And we just had a sort of a general chit-chat to start with before we got onto any sort of serious questions. Then, because um, I've been travelling for a long while, I'd not really had anything much to eat or oh, drink yes, for, for, for two days, you see. And so it was all rush, rush, rush to do it. And I wanted to be on time and go through all this. So... This, um, normally they have the WRVS trolley that comes around, usually an, an old lady or something pushing it around, and they've got a little reception desk as well there. Anyway, this this big guy comes around, um, you know, saying sandwiches, drinks, anybody want anything? So I'm sort of, yeah, okay. I'll, I'll, and Stephen's sort of kicking me under the table and, and sort of, no, 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 you know. So I said, no, no, it's okay. I'll, I'll, I'll leave it for the moment. I said, well, what's wrong, Stephen? He says, oh, that's... that's um, Fred or whatever he's called, you know, he's in for poisoning. <laughs> and it just, it just seems, you know, black humour in the sense of a prison that the man doing the tea trolley and all the, all the sandwiches is in for poisoning. Because of his youth and his lack of worldly experience, Stephen told Don that he'd found adjusting to life inside hard. Yeah, he'd been in a lot of uh, very high-profile prisons where you mix him with, um, you know, paedophiles, murderers, uh, rapists, all sorts of uh, individuals, really. Um, and you're sharing cells with these people, you're sharing your table with them, you know, very heavy people. You know, I think he met, he, he, or not met, but saw Ian Brady in one of his prisons he was in. The Ian Brady, the Moore's murder? Moore, Moore's murder, yes. And he's come across a lot of, you know, uh, serial killers and different people in the past. You know, bearing in mind his his mental state at, at the time, and you know, you've got to just get on with it, really. Was he classed as a sex offender because of the sexual assault elements yeah. of the conviction? That's right. Yeah, um, and that's part of the this in denial because you you're classed if you're in denial, particularly of a murder, but any any serious offence, really. Um, People think you're, you're more dangerous because you refuse to accept it. Uh, he he should have attended sex offenders courses for rehabilitation, and he refused to go on that uh, for throughout his his, his prison uh, life. Yeah, <laughs> for it's right throughout twenty six, twenty seven years, he refused to go on these because there was no point. Um, it, it's like the Alcoholics Anonymous or, or any others, where you you're in a circle and you're all admitting that you've got certain problems or whatever, but if you've not done it. How can you admit or join in with this? Again, it impacted on any chance or any hope of parole. So it was a never-never land, really. Unless you admit that you, you've committed a, a murder or a sex offence, um, you're never going to get out. And it's, it was an impossible position, and that's one of the reasons I took it up with the European courts, you know, because uh, he wouldn't even allow, because of that, to have an interview before the parole board to put his case. How was he treated? And Because, I mean... I know sort of anecdotally people talk about kind of being um, a, a sexual offender can mm. make you the target uh, within within the prison system. Yeah. Um, what was his experiences that he related to you? I mean, I put quite as much as you can in the book uh, about this, but 
I mean, he, he went through a horrendous time, particularly when he first started his, his sort of prison sentence, because obviously it's fairly fresh then. Everybody in prison gets to know about it if, you know, when it's published in papers and radio, television, whatever. And so it becomes like a nonce, really. He's, he's, he's accused of being a, a sex offender. Um, quite often you, you sort of, you know, strip naked and thrown in, in showers um, where it's absolutely piping hot. You know, it's, it's the lobster treatment, they call it, you know, where... You, you just turn you, you you deliberately kept in hot water and you turned into a lobster you, you you're more or less scolded really yeah. you're beaten up um the showers are very very slippery you know uh, they put soap on the floor so you, you you're dancing and you're falling over and you, sometimes they put a fire hose on you you know which um the prison authorities turn a blind eye to say, what do the warders do? yeah they just stand by because they they hate sex offenders in particular so he's he's gone through all that. He's been uh, abused himself. He's been attacked uh, several times. Um, you know, his life's been pretty hell, particularly, say, in the early years. Did he talk to you about this one in person or in letters? or? On, um, or no, phone? mainly in, in, in person, really. Um, and again, it was something he wanted to sort of say, you know, let's forget it, let's move on. Mm-hmm. Um, I've not gone into great detail with all this in the book for because he didn't want me to. Yeah, if he wants to talk about it sometimes later, well, that's fine, but... You know, I, I can understand and appreciate what what's happened to him. It has been pretty horrific. Is this one of them here? Yeah, that's right. This this is a response to a Home Office um, document. Oh, so I've got a, I've but got you, one of the letters that Stephen. Is this the original? Yeah, he's he's typed these. So this is this is the uh, one of the letters that, uh, well, the not letters. It's a yeah, paper mean, of responses to. Well, but I mean, basically, what's what's happened? I I put in the initial submission to the police and the Home Office, based on my original findings over maybe the first six months. Uh, which were fairly lightweight, but it's to test the water to see what they they wanted to do and what they had because you know the, again you've got the the police saying everything's been burnt, lost, and destroyed. You've got the Home Office saying we don't know where he is. Basically, is <laughs> is is lost in the system. So I wanted to fight to to push the boat out and say right, will you tell me where he is in the system? What documents have you got? So I put in this first submission with uh, limited uh, evidence to say that there was doubt against the conviction. And they would respond, and the Home Office uh, Minister re- would respond. It was Tim Kirkhope initially in that, from the service. And so I would then pass that to Stephen and say, right, what is your response to that? And so he would write so, this. So these are the point by point responses, yeah. Stephen's to. So you put it in a submission of points you want to make to the Home Office. They answer back yeah. with questions or yeah, rebuttals they'd, or they'd reject it and say, points. this is the reason why we're not interested. And this is Stephen yeah. taking up their point. Yeah. So it's going. Yeah. Um, so page two, paragraph five. So he's, again, he's he's responded to bits. Um, yeah, he's, he's he's gone through the whole thing, and particular emphasis where he's put in his his side yeah. and, and contradicting what the what the the government paper, the Home Office, are saying. Yeah. So, for instance, here it says uh, page two, paragraph five. And Steve has written, "I don't know why he is questioning the validity of whether or not I had a spinal condition, which I'm sure is well documented in medical records. The same would apply with my having gone back to work that very day after having had time off with a cold." Mm. So, just again, just yeah, just, point by point. Yeah, point yeah. by point. Yeah. Yes, very. Because very, what 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 I was finding with is very that detailed. The, the Home Office, um, and so they, they, they sent very sketchy replies, which you could absolutely rip to shreds. They were full of uh, anomalies, um, riddled riddle with errors, etc., etc., which needed to be rectified, first of all, because you think, well, if that is the basis of their defence, if you like, in terms of, of trying to say, you know, he must be guilty, it's pretty ropey. Mm, yeah. So with Stephen able to do that... Um, and, and address it point by point was a great help to me because I couldn't have done that myself without him giving me that information. And I, so, so I could contradict it. Through your relationship, you gave him kind of confidence and the tools to be actively yeah. own this. that's right, yeah. Can we look, look at some letters? We've put quite a few letters in the book, uh, about my relationship with Stephen. I mean, the first one was uh, December 1994, so that was what about three, three or four months after I started on the case. December 1994, Her Majesty's Prison, 7 North Square, Dorchester, Dorset. Dear Don, I would like to thank you and all your staff for taking interest in my case, but above all, for believing in my innocence. I appreciate that this is quite an undertaking for a small paper to take on, 
I hope that I'm able to help you with your investigation as much as I possibly can. I trust what I've sent you will be enough to get you started. Please feel free to ask me more. I don't see why I should sit back and let you do all the work. Best regards, Stephen Downey. That was his very first one. Um, so that's nice. So, it's, so he's, he's recognising the effort and yeah. uh, and want to be involved. The the next one, the February one, talking about. So you talk about putting the yeah. story in the Mercury. Well, that's right. I mean, following on from from the first story in the Mercury. Fifth of February, nineteen ninety five. Dear Don, it really is amazing the power the press has on people. I would never have thought for a minute that one of the four suspects would have come forward to tender evidence, perhaps even against his own friends. I find it equally hard to believe that the police have allowed vital evidence to remain in a vault for almost 22 years. It seems they were desperate to secure a conviction and a fast one, with little regard for who should have shouldered the blame. It has often been said the truth will always prevail, and now it looks as if I'm on that path. That proves yet again the old adage is true. It wasn't until the Daily Star took up my plight in a bid to establish my innocence that I began to have reservations about the kind of reception I would get from fellow inmates. Any fears I had can certainly be laid to rest. This has become big news and the buzz of excitement ripples through the wing at Mail Corps, with a number of eager lags jolsting to be next to me in line and read the following instalments in what has become Dorchester Prison's very own soap opera. Even the staff are wishing me well to fight to have the Home Secretary exercise a royal prerogative of mercy. The wealth of evidence contained in a dossier would appear to offer the Home Secretary little choice in what action he can take. Whether or not Mr Howard will view it as a case of Hobson's choice remains to be seen. Stephen Downing. Well, they could say that he's, he's actually served over his time, not saying he's innocent, yeah. But he served over his time, his over his tariff, um, and that they, they consider him uh, safe to be released. So, but the Queen would have had to uh, endorse that. He was being detained at Her Majesty's pleasure. Michael Howard was was involved then as the Home Secretary. Um, it says the wealth of evidence contained in the dossier would appear to offer the Home Secretary little choice in what action he can take. Whether or not Mr. Howard will view this as a case of Hobson choice remains to be seen. So he. He's a bit naive in a sense, thinking, well, because we've got a big splash in the newspapers and the, the Daily Star and other nationals are beginning to sort of take a shine to this, um, and I put the submission in, that it's going to be a piece of cake. are on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at 50 dollars, luxurious italian leather bags and so much more plus quince only works with factories that use safe ethical and responsible manufacturing get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with quince go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365 day returns Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. William Tyrrell was a three-year-old boy who disappeared from the township of Kendal on the New South Wales mid-north coast 
on 12 September 2014. Police have been told he was outside playing one minute and gone the next. His disappearance has become one of the most puzzling investigations in Australian history. It has been going on now for almost five years. Millions of dollars have been spent. The strike force at one point had 26 full-time detectives. Hundreds more around Australia have been exploring 600 possible suspects. And what has all that been for? William is still missing. My name is Caroline Overington. This investigation, Nowhere Child, is available now. To hear more, just search for Nowhere Child in your podcast app. Stephen had turned down my request to talk to him, so I sat down with Don Hale in his cottage in Wales to learn about the man he'd spent eight years attempting to free. What was the feeling you got from people in Bakewell about Stephen? Well, generally, I mean, I, I mean, people say, you know, after all these, we, we're not worried and that. Well, yes, there's always the nutters out there. Yes. You don't know who they are. And if, as I'm campaigning for Stephen, if you're saying he didn't do it, then obviously somebody else did do it. And there's that worry that that person could be still out there or their associates or whatever could be working for them to make sure you and other witnesses don't say what you you intend to say. So you, you've got that. But generally, I, I went, I made myself known in Batewell as much as he could. Uh, we had a few public meetings and things. We had a public demonstration and absolutely thousands of people would turn up for these things. Um, and people would, would be patting on the back in the street and shaking their hands. So well, thank God somebody's doing something about it at last. You know, he's serving time for somebody else. You, we all know who's done it, don't we, and all this sort of thing. The years go by, the case drags on, and Stephen is still in prison. There were several months, anyway, that um, we went when I didn't know where he was, and his family didn't know where he was, for certain. See, the more, the more I'm pressing and pushing to do it, uh, because I won't back down, he won't back down, uh, he's then moved from a very uh, sort of... Fairly laid back sort of place at Dorchester. He's put in Dartmoor, which is probably one of the toughest prisons in the country in a sense. It's a very old Napoleonic prison. He used to be there for, you know, the prisoners from, from Napoleon in, in all those years ago. Um, and it's not changed a great deal in some parts. So he's put in like the, the older part. And on his own admission, he's put in with all the other troublemakers on a wing uh, that's deliberately sort of created. You know, windows missing, it's freezing cold. He's, he's sent there in the middle of winter. He's sent there in. I mean, I didn't know. He, he disappeared off the radar. Her Majesty's Prison, Dartmoor, Yelverston, Devon. Dear Don, I thought you'd like to hear a few words from me. I've gone down with a cold again. The cell is quite spacious, though sparsely furnished. There's no light switch on the inside, so lights are turned off at 11pm. I have to wedge close one of the windows, but even that doesn't ward off the bit of cold. I'm typing this with my denim jacket on. It's just as well this donkey jacket is part of the clothing issue, as I might have to start wearing that too. All outgoing letters are censored and phone calls are monitored. The regime here is very much different from the other places I've been to. Best wishes, Stephen Downing. So he's really under pressure, you know, to... to and he's told, get rid of this guy, get him off your back, you know. If you want to enjoy some, any sort of lifestyle here, uh, you know, you've got to admit you've done it admit you're going to take part in these sex offenders course and get rid of this journalist, you know. So he was told very directly yeah. that he was being moved to this draconic prison because of yeah. your interference. Yeah, in yeah, part. that's right. And I complained to, I think it was Jack Straw then as the Home Secretary for it, because I'd only just been in contact with him about all this. And within weeks of that, he's suddenly moved in the middle of the night to, to Dartmoor, where you can see it's absolutely freezing cold, no heating, light and whatever. And you, you, you're putting on every ounce of clothing to try and keep warm. So, I mean, I've said, you know, down his correspondence and chats with his family, a few phone calls that was home. Wasn't allowed to contact me at all. Totally banned from that. You're, only, you're blocked. You're only allowed one call to a certain number, which is the home number. Uh, he was still clinging to the hope of another transfer out. And what he was trying to get was to somewhere with more sort of educational facilities. Um, 
Uh, as much as I appreciate all that everyone is trying to do for me, the mere mention of any other establishment is likely to have the allocations unit considered as a possibility. I've already had to write, pleading with them to send me to Little Hay rather than anywhere else. That's Little Hay? Um, that's sort of Nottingham. Oh, right, yeah. so much, much nearer than yeah. Dartmoor. It's true that I would be closer to home if it was at Nottingham, but this is Category B prison and would be a step backwards for me in terms of uh, progression through the system. And Little Hay's an open prison? I think prison? it's a C. A C. I think it's a C one, yeah. No, not, not open, no. It's still quite strict there. Yeah. I've been there lots of times. The reason I feel so strongly about Little Hay is that they offer an education seven days a week. And part of the curriculum includes law and chemistry, which I'd like to study. Um, Interesting. I, I know <laughs> I know of no other prison which offers those. At the end of each day, I'm the one stuck behind bars, so I want my incarceration to be as comfortable as possible. Now, he's still in there. This is in October. He's still in there uh, in late November when uh, he's getting down and depressed again, really, you know. Her Majesty's Prison, Dartmoor, Yelverton, Devon, 2nd of November 1996. This will be my fifth Christmas without a visit from my family. It's supposed to be a prison policy to promote family ties. If it wasn't for my family, I will withdraw any attempts of an appeal and say you've kept me this long, you can keep me for the rest of my life. Best wishes, Stephen Downing. September 97. He's put now handwritten, because <laughs> he's, he's sending me now a handwritten letter. About all the others have been typewritten. Done. I had to hand in my typewriter after being told I'm not allowed it after no less than five years. I believe it all began when John, John Atkins, my lawyer, asked if he might be permitted to see me again in the afternoon. He was told no. Unknown to me, he telephoned the prison after leaving and was told by the life of governor that he could not see me. I'm sure it's one of the wing SOs who refused and was niggled at getting his decision overruled. Next, I was told I could no longer have letter-headed paper. September the 2nd, 1997. Now handwritten. Dear Don, I was deeply sorry to learn of the death of Princess Diana. At least she is at peace and not harassed by the press. I do hope there will be news of major development soon, particularly to say there will be an appeal. I would also like bail to be granted, as I want to be with my family. Best wishes, Stephen Downing. Got another one from 97. Yeah. This is following my, my appearance really before the Pro Board, when I say I was, I was rejected, more or less out of hand. It was a waste, absolute waste of time going, really. But this is November 97. Um, Don, I should be grateful if you'd approach the Secretary of State on my behalf, following the outcome of my recent HMP tribunal. As you know, the Pro Board, board turned me down for release in licence and considered me unsuitable for transfer to open conditions, for the same reason, because he's in denial, you see. Um, the main reason is their assumption that I need to address my offending behaviour and prove that I do not present a risk to the public. The doctor made it quite clear that I was not a risk to the public and said that I had cooperated and shown that I was not in need of a SOTB, a sex offenders uh, course, uh, and as I showed no signs of any sexual deviance. So it's the same old problem coming back time after time, you see. So you never got, you never get in it. But he's not allowed to present his case still. It's it's me or or John that's that's doing it. Did it attract the attention of, um, I don't know what what you call them. Often, you know, prisoners can attract attention from particularly women or a sexual attention from people who want to write and oh, kind yeah, of fetishise. He started to get quite a mailbox of um, of admirers and things like that. Where you know, obviously, women. I mean, I, I've been a prison visitor before this uh, for years. And I was always amazed at the number of quite often uh, attractive women, etc., that would write to, to prison, particularly lifers, um, and form a, a bond and association, and sometimes you know married them. Um, the two I've been to two weddings um, as as a witness for um, murderers, lifers uh, in who, prison in prison in Nottingham. But at the time of the attack and of Stephen's arrest, trial and conviction, there was much talk from some of the police involved and in the town itself of Stephen having a bit of a reputation and for being a pervert. Many people seemed a bit unsurprised when Stephen was arrested and, initially at least, confessed to the attack and to the sexual motive. Once I got involved with the investigation, so many people said that they'd been down to the police station and they'd seen Ernie, and he said, you're basically wasting your time, he's already admitted it, we've got the man that's done it, that's it. 
and he was the man that was seen to be continually saying that um making false allegations about Stephen Charlesworth yeah yeah that um you know oh yeah we've been watching him for years he he He'd been up to different things. Uh, there was an assault on a woman, you know, a few years before when I think he was probably about 14 or something like that. You know, there was all sorts of things that didn't stand up, really. But it was the impression he was giving to fellow officers and the impression given to Joe Public that Stephen had got... Um, w- was was a bit of an, odd one, an oddball and a bit, uh, you know, potentially a pervert. Don believes one of the main sources of these rumours about Stephen harassing women came from one policeman in particular... Ernie Charlesworth. We talked about outsidedness and that, you know, Stephen was sort of marked out as being a bit outside. Well, he was a loner. He was a bit of an odd an odd child. Uh, he'd not got many friends. Um, he'd got learning disabilities, learning difficulties, should I say, really. Um, he was classed as, the official title was Backward, where he got a reading age of 11. And he kept himself to himself, really. He liked his music and, he, he you know, he was a... I don't know. He, he was just—he liked his own company, shall we say? Um, it stands out against the background of yeah, being a yeah. being a teenage boy in yeah, Wakefield at that time. That's right. I mean, you know, um, there were lots of organisations he could have joined, but he, he didn't really want to do it. He wasn't particularly sporty. Um, he wasn't—he wasn't outgoing. He's quite a shy nature. And so, you know, why should he join these clubs, really? But if you didn't join, then you were classed as 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 being a bit a bit simple or a bit. You know, it's a bit odd in terms of you know, well he won't join him. You know, he's, he's, he, you know, there's something odd about him. Um, and he all he all he was was a quietish lad who just wanted to to be in his you know do his own thing really. He he, he liked nature. He was very good with his hands. He, he's quite good at sort of engineering type things, putting things together. Um, and he got an interest in in cooking. You know, catering. He he did odd, he did uh, meals and things for his parents and things like that. And he always you know maintained that sort of interest. But because you weren't joining in with a gang and and you were a bit shy and, and reticent of of other boys and that you were you were classed as an odd boy, you see, um, and it's it's something that happens quite often. It's it's not yeah, not the only person, know exactly. you know. You're, yeah, well, um, as you said, you know, if, if if after ten, twenty years of coming from Manchester, you can still be the foreigner. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, even yeah. when you're born around there, yeah. you're other. It's that's it. I mean, I, you know, I had abuse and, and things all, all the time and that thing. You know, what do you know? You've only been here ten years and all this sort of thing. You know. Well, how many years do you have to be somewhere before you actually accept it? I don't know. But, you know, I, I just took it in my stride, really. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, people have tried to bully me at school and different things, and you, you've, I've stood up to them. I wondered whether your determination and particularly the way you kind of write about standing up to like Charlesworth and mm. other people are basically trying to bully you yeah, yeah. and seeing Stephen that otherness rang bells for you, whether that's part of your motivation. Was well, yeah, I mean, I had... Fighting bullies. <laughs> you know, as as, as the, the case sort of progressed, my, my investigations progressed, I, I ended up with, with sympathy for Stephen in the way he had been bullied uh, in his life and the way, because he was slightly different, that he was... Uh, you know, people threw these allegations at him, and he wasn't the sort that would challenge them. You see, he wouldn't go and, you know, play pop with uh, Ernie Charles or anyone. And very few others would. I mean, he he was a a bully. I'd met him. I'd, I'd known him before. Um, I'd come across him before, and he was very arrogant sort of guy. He he wouldn't give you time of day. He hated journalists. I don't think he he, he liked me at all before this case even started. Really. But the fact that I was editor of the local paper and I was asking questions that he didn't like, not just about this, but other cases in the past, he just wasn't prepared to talk to me. And he was very, very aggressive with me. Uh, and many times I thought he was going to attack me over things. Um, you know, and he, he was a very difficult guy to deal with. But when all this sort of came to light and, and his name kept coming up, I, you know, I would go back to him and ask him about what he knew. And, um, you know, I went round to his house one time and... Uh, uh, where he's making allegations of that, and I, I particularly wanted to find out why he was saying these things about Stephen still and things. So I wanted to know: has he ever been charged with any offence? Had Stephen been yeah. charged? Yeah. Uh, has he ever been in trouble with anything? And you know, obviously, he refused to deal with anything. I mean, I don't lose my temper very often, to be perfectly honest. But I got a, a dislike of this guy because he he was he was a liar and a cheat. There's no two ways about it. He and I, after reading a lot of the stuff, I knew that he could have helped. Um, Stephen rather than hindered him and he was the Mr Nice Guy seemingly in, in, in the interrogation 
you know, just tell me, you know, like the kind uncle, just tell mm. me what was what, and we can sort things out. I mean, much easier for you. Good cop, bad cop, yeah, but yeah, approach of and interrogation so that so we're familiar with from TV. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the two tough guy detectives would come in uh, two at a time, they'd do the bit, and then leave Ernie to, to sort it out, you know. Oh, don't worry about them, don't worry about them. Look, it's all right. Everything will be all right, you know. Um, you want to go home, don't you? You want to have a rest, and, you know, and making it, Make it sound nice and cosy. Just tell us what you know. What, what really happened then, and you know everything could be all right. And he was the guy that was supposed, you know, Stephen's supposed to confess to. So all right, I'll, I'll tell you then what happened. He dashes out and brings the, the uh, you know, the senior officers back, etc. So he got a lot to answer for, and I, a lot of questions I wanted to put to him. So where have you got this information from? I said it's all rubbish. I said I can give you the information that you need. You know because you charge uh, you you spoke to the person that was responsible for an attack on a woman that you still blame Stephen for you know after 20 years or 20 whatever years 25 years I think it was he still blamed Stephen was telling Stephen he was responsible for attack on, on a on a woman in Bakewell smacking a, someone's bottom um running through the park or whatever and it had been proven that uh, it wasn't him because he was at school at a presentation night and his picture actually appeared in the paper that that next week. So so this was the you know the the prior form the prior perverted behaviour that yeah. he was implying. But for for years and years later, he still said that he, he believed Stephen was was the man responsible. But that's typical of the way he was, um, and he was still the local bully, and everybody knew him as the local bully, and people were frightened of him. You know, well I say he didn't frighten me, but I think it would have come to fisticuffs if if um, he came within a whisker of that. Surprisingly, the police don't agree with Don's view of Charlesworth. But for me, the difference in opinion raised questions over if he was a bad cop, as Don believes, or simply a local bobby in a small rural town dealing with an incredibly violent crime and out of his depth. This was Bakewell, not the Bronx. I was 17 when my mum died. My middle sister was 15 and my baby sister was 10. Susan Mills, who lived in the town and knew Wendy before the attack, experienced a different side of Ernie. When my dad went, I was 18, Jan and my middle sister was 16 and my baby sister was 11. And we were left, <laughs> just left. <laughs> and we, I mean, the policemen knew all the kids. And you know, and who's the policeman? Well, the main one was um, Ernie Charlesworth at that time. What's he like? He was all right because after my uh, dad left, um, I I was at work and the, my sisters were at school, and it was about six months after my um, dad had gone, and I came home from work. At, I'd nipped home at lunchtime. And somebody had been in the house and I couldn't think who it would be other than my father had come in and he'd taken some stuff. And this was about six months after he'd gone. And so I went to see Ernie Charlesworth and I said to Ernie, I'm a bit frightened now because I don't want my dad coming back um, in the night or anything like that. So Ernie came and he helped me change the locks on all the house on the on the doors, and he helped me do that. Was he all right? Because he was all right. He, he comes across, I think, um, you know, when I read Don's book, and you know, Don's obviously had some run-ins with him, mm. and well, Char there's er no love lost in that front. Ernie Ernie would have been on the defensive with him because he, he was accusing him. I mean, Stephen, the Cape, back in the in the seventies, and. You have to remember as well, nothing had ever happened like this in Bakewell before. Nothing. So little local bobbies in Bakewell Police Station wouldn't have a clue how to handle somebody who just, let alone a young teenager who'd murdered somebody, they just wouldn't know how to handle it. And I, I am sure that they did everything wrong. They didn't have a, an, a responsible adult with him. They didn't follow the protocol, but they would never have hurt him or or manhandled him or anything like that. They probably didn't follow the 
what because I don't think they know what to do to be honest Eventually, Stephen's legal team win victory to overturn the restrictions on prisoners who are, in denial, being allowed to petition for parole. So when did you get victory on the in denial case? When was it taken off the British statute? It all came in sort of the, in the late 90s, really. Um, I can't remember exact dates now without looking at all the notes, no. but, but it went on sort of, you know, 96 to sort of 99-ish, that sort of region. I mean, eventually, you know, uh, the government admitted defeat and they paid him 500 euros as compensation. They paid Stephen 500 <laughs> yeah, euros. Yeah, um, and how, how many How many years had he been inside at this point? Mm, uh, 22, 23 maybe. I'm not going to do the maths yeah. on no. uh, 500 <laughs> divided by. But, I mean, they, and they were quite incensed. They still didn't want to do this, but they were sort of commanded by the uh, European Court and this was eventually, well, it was adopted into European rules fairly quickly and so eventually it... into, into uh, British law. Though teeth grindingly slow, the case was progressing. But now it was measured out in years rather than in the months that Don had originally hoped. It was far, far from the neat 90-minute story arc of a TV crime show. Did it feel close to um, 95? Well, it, it was... It was a bit of a phony war in a way. <laughs> it was, um, I mean, I, I thought, I mean, I was naive as well. This is my first sort of big case, if you like, with this sort of information. But I thought, well, okay, if you provide enough information to counter sort of the intelligence that's put, put by the Home Office, that you're casting doubt over the conviction, in effect, um, that I would certainly get an appointment with the C3, go through it with them in, in, in some office in London, and possibly get an appeal within uh, 12 months, two years sort of thing, you know, with the backing of legals and whatever. Um, but it became pretty obvious that this wasn't the way they, they worked, you know. Um, and again, it was going through this sort of transition period with, with the... Um, Conflict is obviously got the, the Blair regime comes in. Yeah, that's right. And also there was a sort of becoming a sort of a review of the prison system and things. And we're, we're all, say, fairly naive, if you like, in those days in terms of thinking, well... This is not going to go on for that long. It'll be over by Christmas and yeah, World War One. That's right. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it, it was a strange one because I was I was in completely unknown territory, not knowing how long these things would take, how how the system works, or what was what. It seems to be that there was this kind of peak of, of Don's investigation and then obviously he's got a paper that to print things on, um, a lot of attention. And then it's kind of like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it all goes quiet for like five years. Yeah. Well, no, I think that was one of the frustrating things. Patrick McLaughlin is the Member of Parliament for the region which includes Bakewell. It was one of the frustrating things. So if you go back to, I think the Home Office were in the case of sort of saying we're going to set up this independent commission um, and therefore they were sort of holding things back while it went to the independent commission, then it went to the independent commission and there we go. Right, so it was also caught between kind of system changes. Yes, yes, yes. Ah, that yes, makes sense. Yes. Frustrating. But I'm not sure that yeah. was added, that may have added sort of 12 months or so. Yeah. It still doesn't explain the 27 years. Now finally, after Stephen's legal team won the right for prisoners in denial to petition for parole, Stephen could finally have his day in court and his right to appeal. Having maintained his innocence of the murder of Wendy Saul for 27 years, could he be about to walk free? Did Stephen always retain positivity or did he have moments of just thought, like, this is too much, just jack it all in? And... It was ups and downs, really. I mean... My campaign was, was pretty heavy going for, for everybody concerned because, you know, it's three steps forward and two steps back all the time. Uh, there were continual knockbacks in terms of, you know, the Home Office not wanting to deal with it. They didn't even know where he was. Got him down as the Vern, and he'd moved from there, I don't know, two or three years before, I think it was. Uh, he was now in Dorchester. They didn't really bother, and their attitude on the, on the phone to me was, 
well, you know, he's an idom, you know, he's like scum, you know, we're not bothered about him. nobody cares about him. An idom is it in denial of yeah, murder. Yeah, that's right. And I'm sort of saying, well, you know, I care about it. He's still got his family. They are campaigning for it. They've been campaigning for much longer than I have, 20, 20 years before. Um, you know, there could well be new evidence that comes to light that could, could doubt it. And they were very much doubting Thomas's. They weren't interested. Look, he's, you know, he's, he's a low life. We're not really interested. He's bottom the pile. And I had to keep saying to them, you know, and they said, well, why do you keep saying he's, he's in Dorchester? And I said, well, because I've been to visit him. I went to see him last week, you know. I was thinking, well, if they don't know about him, how many other people have been lost in the system? They didn't care. And it seemed to be their attitude that if you're in denial of any offence, not necessarily murder, but in denial of any offence, you're on the blacklist. And it's, it's the forgotten list, if you like. <laughs> we don't give a damn about them because they're not going to get out. Another side to the story. Who's slagging me off then? Next time. But it's still uh, an unsolved murder. It, it's still uh, yeah, worthy of investigation. Reporter Murder in the Graveyard was presented and produced by me, Lucy Ditchmont. Liam Burns was reading the letters of Stephen Downing. It was mixed by Dave Dodd. The music was composed and performed by Edwin Pearson. The executive producer was Matt Horn. Reporter Murder in the Graveyard was a Wireless Studios production. And you can listen to Reporter Murder in the Graveyard on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever you get your podcasts from. And please feel free to rate and review. A brutal murder, a wrongful conviction, a 27-year fight for justice. Read the full story that inspired this podcast. In Murder in the Graveyard, investigative journalist Don Hale tells the story of his relentless fight to overturn the longest miscarriage of justice the UK has ever seen. Delve deeper into the case that shocked the nation. Murder in the Graveyard. Available now in paperback, ebook, and audio narrated by author Don Hale himself. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.